Hello and welcome to a Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Raish, your host, and I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, he is the director of liturgy in the Diocese of La Crosse, and he also is an editor um, of the Adoramus Bulletin, which we are pleased to announce have launched in Australia and New Zealand uh, just this year. So uh, he joins me as none other than Chris Carstens. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Good, Charbel. Good to be with you. Thanks for having yeah. me. Did I get that right? It is the Diocese of La Crosse? It is. It's the Diocese right. of La Crosse in the state of Wisconsin, a couple hours right. uh, from Chicago. Fantastic. Now, you do have a few other um, hats uh, you wear. You also um, a host, a co-host on the Liturgy Guys podcast. Yeah, yeah Liturgy Guys podcast with a few others and uh, teach on occasion at the Liturgical Institute uh, uh, on the north side of Chicago as well. Fantastic. Um, Oh, excellent. Excellent. And you've written a few books. Uh, how many books are we up to now? Uh, I, I don't know, uh, either in whole or in part, about six or eight, I guess. So um, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've got a couple coming out this month, one on uh, the solemnities of the church year with uh, Dennis McNamara and another liturgical uh, institute alum named Alexis Katarna. And then um, there's a book by Romana Gardini that had never been translated into English. It had only existed in uh, uh, Italian and German. It's called Liturgy and Liturgical Formation. And that'll be available in English uh, any, any day now, actually. So, wow. yeah, a couple wow. of exciting things. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll look out uh, for those. And I would really want to get our hands on it at Perusia, see if we can get them on our website and make them available in the region. So we'll get on to that. Um, yeah, but what thank you. What I wanted to really talk about um, in today's show was Adoramus Bulletin. Um, it's an initiative. Uh, you founded Adoramus Bulletin, is that correct? Or you uh, continued no. on? No, it was founded by uh, three individuals in the United States here. Uh, one is Father Joseph Fessio, whom I think you know. He founded Oh, Ignatius we know him Press. well. Yes. Yeah. Good, and another priest Holy named priest. Father Jerry Pekorsky, who's a priest, uh, a diocesan priest in Virginia. He founded a group called Credo that tried to uh, foster uh, authentic liturgical uh, translations. And a woman named Helen Hull Hitchcock uh, from St. Louis, Missouri. So she originally was in a group called uh, Women in, for Faith and Family. And she was especially interested in, uh, during the 80s, uh, they wanted a lot of translations with inclusive language and things like that. And she didn't think that these were, was doing women any good with these uh, translations that were inaccurate. So the three of them, with a lot of support from actually then Cardinal Ratzinger, began the Otter Ramus Bulletin in uh, 1995. So wow. uh, it ran for 20 years before I ever showed up. So uh, I'm uh, standing on the shoulders of giants and trying to carry on uh, the mission that they, that they founded. How did you get involved then? What and what was there a transition sort of they handed over the reins or how, how what happened then? Yeah, well, really what happened was uh, the death of Helen Hall Hitchcock, uh, mm. you know, about eight years ago. So she was really the day to day uh, energy and editor of the bulletin. Uh, Father Pekorsky had a parish to run and Father mm. uh, Fessio was running Ignatius Press. So it was really Helen who was running out of Ramus Bulletin when she passed away. Um, looking for somebody else to to do it and father pekorsky knew somebody who knew me and uh, it eventually found its way to me and so uh i was then as i still am the director of the liturgy office in lacrosse wisconsin and so took this on as kind of a side uh, side job with about you know six or eight other people i mean so we're an entirely part-time staff 
Uh, some of our other staff include, we have a postal carrier and a stay-at-home mom, another liturgy director, uh, you know, a fundraiser. Jesse does some of these things. Jesse Wiley from Liturgy Guys. So, yes. you know, we all do what we can to, uh, to put out a product that uh, hopefully helps people to pray better, uh, pleases God, and brings joy to our lives. So, yeah. Wow. Great effort. So, so uh, is it right then to say, has it been eight years for your, your involvement? Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. I think going into our eighth year. Yep. Yeah, wow, wow. Well, great. I have to congratulate you. It is a, a fantastic read, um, Adoramus Bullet. I'm holding it up here. This is what they look like. It's, it's a newspaper, basically. Uh, um, people can see that. Um, and you have a range of different articles, very interesting, um, all ranging around the, the liturgy, the sacred liturgy. Um, could you uh, maybe for those, just to clarify and make sure I get it right, but the Adoramus Bulletin, what's its, um, I guess, the purpose of the Adoramus Bulletin? What's the ultimate um, idea behind the bulletin? What can people expect? Mm -hmm. So the Adoramus Bulletin, we, the, the, there's a, a the, kind of the, the long official name is Adoramus colon Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy. So the Second Vatican Council, we're, we're men and women who uh, of the magisterium of the church and certainly accept uh, the council and what it, uh, uh, what it put forth with uh, regard to the liturgical reform and restoration. We accept that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, you know, even while, you know, say, for example, like Pope Benedict especially, we want to read that in the, the long vision of the church in a proper hermeneutic, mm. as he would say, or interpretation, even while the, the gifts and treasures of the liturgy opened up to men and women in 2022. But what you would find in uh, the Adoramus Bulletin is, uh, you know, especially today is, you know, we want to present uh, to our readers, and first of all, the tone of it, it's not an academic bulletin. It's not an academic journal. It's not, we have academics who write in it, but we also had, we had one last week by, uh, on poetry. Um, maybe this came through our AV Insight, Charbel, I don't know if you remember seeing it, uh, by a stay-at-home mom. And she yes. writes poetry. She wrote something on poetry with St. Thomas uh, as an example in the, uh, the sequence for Corpus Christi and some other things. So we have academics, certainly, who, who write in it. Uh, Adam Cooper from, uh, from one of the universities yeah. in Notre Dame, I think, in, in Australia was one of them recently. Um, but it's not written for fellow academics. It's written for, uh, I don't know, <laughs> normal people. <laughs> I put it that way. <laughs> No, people that you don't need to have a PhD to, to read the Adoramus Bulletin. It's for priests who have you know, been in the seminary 20, 30 years ago, parish staffs. And what I hope we're able to do is uh, present the church's teaching in a way that's orthodox and joyful and accessible and evangelical so mm. that the liturgy can be prayed better by those in the sanctuary, uh, excuse me, can be celebrated better by those in the sanctuary and prayed more fervently by those of us in, uh, in the pews. So we're not trying to move the liturgy more to the left or more to the right or more mm -hmm. traditional way or more progressive way. We take the books as they're given and try to uncover just the, the beauty that uh, they contain which is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going on too long. I like this I'm, mission, Charbel. This is, yeah, it's an important uh, you know, nine out of 10 stories on the liturgy are about what's wrong with it and, you know, complaints about the liturgy. And to be sure, there are things that we could do better about the liturgy. But meanwhile, what, what we're overlooking is the great treasure and gift and beauty what the liturgy is and how it means to 
divinize us and sanctify it. Nobody talks about that. We just talk about strange things that we might hear about, uh, you know, so, and yeah, those things need to be corrected, but the real power of the liturgy is what we're about. Wow, love it. I mean, you've touched on a few things there, and it is, um, as you say, it, it is a hot topic uh, uh, when it comes to, when you go on YouTube now, and uh, you, you would see all those who have um, ultimate claims um, whether it's it's either not it's too traditional <laughs> so there's people who think uh yeah wh whether the vatican II mass is too traditional and others who think it's uh um it's not traditional enough or it, it, it's it's gone too far in in its changes and and there is uh is a whole lot of people in between and it's interesting it can be confusing for someone who stumbles across these podcasts and other people's commentary and mm -hmm. uh, and then going your experience at sunday mass at your local parish and and if you don't know what's going on, you know, that also forms what you think of the liturgy. And, uh, and, and, and let's face it, most of us probably don't even think twice. You just sort of turn up, tick the box, we go. I have to go to church and, um, and wouldn't know the difference between uh, a solemnity or a, or a normal weekday mass or whatever it is. Just, just uh, we might comment that, oh, that was long today or that was short. <laughs> um, so... I guess we, we've got a lot of work to do here because uh, it's helping the average lay Catholic uh, understand and appreciate what's going on in liturgy. But then I think we also got to do on the other end, and as you, as you rightly put, there are people who may misinterpret, I guess, what uh, the Vatican uh, Council was trying to do or, or wanting to do with, with the reform. So I'd love to unpack a few of those just to give people wet the appetite a bit and what we can do with the articles. Because when I read these articles... You've got um, contributors that go back um, and have a series of the history of the liturgy, which is quite um, uh, informative, and that's helped me uh, put it in context. So, I guess um, you know you can't you can't answer every question in one podcast. We can't solve all the problems in one bulletin, but can we at least uh, unpack a few common things here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the um, you know one of one of the positions that we take uh, at the bulletin again, is one of, um, you know, real, I hope, you know, humility and docility and receptivity to what the, what the church gives us. Um, and, you know, it's not perfect because human beings are involved and anytime people get involved, something's, something's going to go wrong. And this has always been the case. And we're not naive to the, you know, the, at the council or, Call it the Council of Trent. Call it the First mm -hmm. Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council. What happened before, during, and after that? I mean, there's just, uh, it's its never been perfect, at least as from our point of view. God's always doing his perfect work, even yes. if we're not. Yes. But, you know, what we're not, um, you know, wringing our hands or losing sleep at night about what we should believe about, you know, the third edition of the Roman Missal or, you know, the Book of Blessings or things like this. Hey, these belong to the church and I belong to the church. And if the church wants me to, understand this and teach others how to celebrate it uh then th then that's what i'm going to do and if the church changes their mind tomorrow and says no no we want you to do this well that's that's our primary goal is to is to try to take what the church gives us and to uh make that as as our basis and so you know i think that's um you're right there there are things that are confusing rightly there's things i'm confused about um but um you know i think that uh uh, being uh, being really open to what the, the the liturgy of the of the church is, you know, there's you know the, the Second Vatican Council 
is, you know, they, there's at least uh, in the United States, we've had a lot of stories over the last couple of weeks. It opened 60 years ago on October 11th, right? So there's been a lot of kind of recounting and going, uh, going back uh, like that. And the, uh, there's a number of principles in Sacrosanctum Concilium, but one of them is not, I like it or I don't like it. That never appears anywhere in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the constitution on the sacred liturgy. So we try to put aside, you know, what we all might like or dislike uh, individually and really open ourselves up to the mystery that's given us uh, mm. by the church. So anyway, and unfortunately, I think that's all too unique a position as maybe you're describing. There's, everybody has an opinion about it, but we want our opinion to be formed by the magisterium. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, uh, that's beautiful. It, we want to we want to be worshiping God the way God wants to be worshipped, and that's yeah. through the church. and And sometimes we might have our own preferences of of, of things, and uh, it's ultimately uh, not just about those. I mean, I it, I I'm uh, born in a Maronite family, so we're out of the Maronite liturgy, Syriac tradition. Uh, my wife is a Melkite, so there's a Byzantine whole tradition there. Very different again. Um, but brought up uh, at a school uh, in the primary years, going to Roman um, mass, the Roman, well, I guess the, uh, yeah, the Novus Ordo mass. But then I've also had um, experience in, in recent times in the, in the Tridentine mass or the traditional Latin mass. And I see beauty in all of it, uh, but I also see problems when people, um, there can be abuses in all of them as well. So the, it's how do we... Um, I guess, navigate and make sure that we are not imposing our own opinion, as you say, in, in, in something that is ancient and, uh, and, and quite very important. And I'd love to just let's, 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 you know, this is going to be about the Western tradition today, not the uh, Eastern ones, but um, yeah, uh, right now, just to put a bit, we do have at the moment, ultimately, there's still uh, the two forms of the mass right now, legitimately, prayed in the west yeah uh what uh, what had been called uh, uh, uh beginning with sumorum pontificum of yeah. benedict 16th in 2007 uh we kind of developed a new terminology of the ordinary form and the extraordinary form um that se and that seems to be uh no longer in use at least uh, okay. by the by the holy father or the official documents Rather, it seems to be considered the pre the liturgy prior to the reforms of 1970, which is kind of a mouthful, but that's how they okay. write it out. So you might say the preconciliar books and the postconciliar. In fact, they don't even they just say the current Roman Missal or okay. the, the pre or okay. the preconciliar books. So the the terminology has changed a little bit, but you can still find both of these forms or mass or sacraments celebrated to both of these sets of books. Uh, I would think around the world, although I, you know, I gather it's mostly United States and uh, uh, some of the countries in Europe, perhaps in uh, Australia as well, um, where the celebration of the preconciliar books had existed in parishes, um, that is to be curtailed by and large uh, following Pope Francis's letter called Traditionis Custodes. Okay? There's some exceptions uh, to this, I think. And I don't know what the implementation of that letter is like Charbel in Australia, for example, but here it really seems to vary from diocese to diocese. It hasn't been a consistent across the board thing. Um, 
but then there are groups that are, uh, what do they call these? Uh, canonically erected personal parishes is one term. So for example, there's a group called the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Okay? Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they run or staff or celebrate certain parishes that have been erected. A personal parish is a parish that's uh, established to meet the needs of a particular uh, group of the faithful. So maybe they're um, in La Crosse, we have uh, Hmong speaking Catholics. So from Hmong, the Hmong are from Cambodia and uh, Vietnam mm. area. And so they might, they do, they have their own personal parish. Um, uh, so some of the fraternity staff personal parishes that just celebrate the, uh, the books prior to the liturgical reform. Now those, should not be affected in any way by traditionis custodes. So if one of those parishes exists in your diocese, probably nothing is going to change about that. But if you had, say, a diocesan priest who was celebrating, according to the 1962 Roman Missal, those by and large are meant to be, oh, kind of, uh, I guess, phased out according to traditionis custodes. But again, it's varies a little bit. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. Yes, there are still these two versions although uh the the preconciliar books has been is being restricted certainly yeah okay I, I, i'm sure uh you've talked about this in the in the podcast the liturgy guys and as and i know this was big news uh earlier this year um and uh and and many many uh were upset by it uh those in the in the yeah, um, traditional mass um because it certainly was restricting that but just to uh understand uh that's not uh there there may be restrictions but there is there is these these churches or these parishes that do continue to offer uh the traditional latin mass and people are, can certainly go to them um they, they can and i think you know one of the things that pope francis said in in this letter that accompanied traditionis custodes and, and that others are saying as well and probably Ramus would be in this this mm. camp is that you know the novus ordo or the the the, the post-conciliar mass can be celebrated in Latin. Okay. It's the Latin mass. Uh, most yeah, of the time it's celebrated in the an vernacular. Interesting point. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be celebrated in the vernacular. It can be celebrated with the liturgy of the Eucharist, celebrated ad orientum. Okay. Mm -hmm. It can be celebrated with uh, Gregorian chant. It can be celebrated in a beautiful church with uh, great attention to, uh, to the rubrics uh, with incense. And so one of the things Pope Francis will say is for those who are attached to the to the liturgy prior to the Second Vatican Council, they can find, for example, in especially in the Roman canon, many of those features that they're drawn to. They didn't evaporate or they shouldn't have evaporated yeah, with the okay. Second Vatican Council. They're still on the books. They're still in the books to celebrate uh, in these ways. So. Yeah, we're, we're and this, I think, is one of Pope Benedict's desires was to, to bring the post-conciliar liturgy to come to appreciate a lot of its traditions that were really jettisoned very quickly in the 70s, for example, or the 80s, you know, the losing the incense or the Gregorian chant or any use of Latin at all or any type of oriented worship, things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, not none. Of, there is still those things that are there in in the in the post conciliar mass. So, can we talk about then why why did it happen so quickly? Where it it feels like it is a complete light switch, you know, from 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 what it was in the before the seventies and then and then after the seventies. What the nineteen seventy missile? What the as you say, very quickly um, moved away from the Latin and the Gregorian chant and 
and and and so I guess most of my life I've I've noticed uh, it, it it not being uh, as and we got to define the word reverence here because it's different rights have different levels of what reverence is but but the reverence I'm seeing or the lack of in in most parishes um, and and that's why I guess you have this sort of polarizing group of people they sort of uh, are not getting these reverend masses sometimes. It, it used to be in the 70s and 80s, some crazy things happening in the liturgy, and yeah. we can touch on that. And that's why you're here to educate people what you should be oh, doing. Um, yeah. And that's sort of, you can tell the damage and the ramifications that affects people. Um, yeah, what what was the reasoning? Because when I read the documents, they seem clear what they're saying, um, but is there are these options of people sort of abusing the options or, or is this, yeah, what's going on here? Yeah, well, a couple of things, and one I think you know we, we should probably say something about well, what really was the the condition of the sacred liturgy prior to the council, say in the forties yeah. or the fifties or the sixties, and you know you don't remember that, and I don't remember that. Wasn't and frankly, most people <laughs> on the planet. I mean, you would have to be, uh, you know, um, seventy five years old at least to really have any re recollection. So it's almost all anecdotes at this point, but still. If you read and, you know, what was the liturgy like? Again, not for people who love the liturgy, especially yeah. the preconciliar liturgy, it had, there were problems prior to the council. And I think there wasn't always reverence. Masses, you know, they speak about masses being celebrated in 20 minutes. And maybe you've heard this, uh, Charbel. I mean, how late can you get to mass and still have it count? Right? <laughs> uh, I get this question a lot. And the answer... Popularly is, oh, just make it to the gospel, right? If you That's make right. it to, or before the gospel or the liturgy of the Eucharist. So, you know, it's it's not like uh, there was all of these faithful, you know, coming early and praying. The people were coming late. People were leaving early. They weren't singing Gregorian chant very often. They were singing hymns because it was very, most celebrations were what was called low mass. So it was recited mm. and you could sing hymns over the top of the Latin texts after they had been recited. So sometimes I think that maybe we paint a picture in our minds that just the 1950s was this golden age of Catholic liturgy, and it just simply wasn't. It simply wasn't. It had its own set of problems, too, and a lot of that, or some of it at least, was irreverence as well. All right, so now you take this into a post-conciliar period where there really, in many cases, unfortunately, was not good liturgical formation on behalf of clergy, on behalf of priests, Okay, and now you put them in an environment where poorly formed people, and please forgive me, anybody out there who, there's exceptions to this, and I'm, I'm try, yes. trying not to paint universally, but, um, and then you have things after the council that, um, you know, I will say this, Charbel, like you said before, not just the documents, but read some of those documents implementing the council, and when I first did this, I, I was amazed at how really I would say strict they were, you know, uh, some pictures you just have, you know, the, the, these ideas of these people in the Vatican, you know, writing memos about, you know, felt banners and burlap and no, there's none of that. They're very serious uh, and I'd say substantial and strict documents. So it wasn't by any license by the Holy See that people started doing strange things. But I think, you know, maybe typically, is uh, just take an example like the year 1968. Okay, so the council ended in 1965, and some of the mm -hmm. reforms started to come out in the late 60s. And 
you know, 1968, uh, there was the Vietnam War and the Tet Offensive, and there were student riots in Europe and in Paris. A million students marched wow. through Paris in May. In the United States, there were riots for civil rights and for voting rights and against the Vietnam War. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, and Robert Kennedy was assassinated in 1968. Humana Vitae came out in 1968. There was even a flu pandemic in 1968, okay. killed as many as 4 million people. Uh, and, and so, you know, this was, imagine like the Second Vatican Council ended on December 8th, uh, 2019. And then during 2020 and 2021, the church had to implement it, you know, amidst COVID and Ukraine wars and, you know, everything else. I mean, it was just, yeah. was not culturally a conducive time to that. So that's another reason where it said, I think just the climate was such that it seemed like a, flitch, a, a switch just got flipped. I mean, the last thing I'll put forward as to why did all of this happen, Charbel, and this comes out of uh, Pope Benedict's, um, you know, this is what he says is there was just, there was a change in mentality that people thought the church and part of the church, her liturgy was kind of a, a new thing. This is a new beginning. We can cut ties to all of this old stuff that is apparently irrelevant. And we can get a new fresh start in a modern or postmodern age. And that was a mentality of many churchmen at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think culturally, ecclesially, historically, uh, in some ways, it just <laughs> was a difficult yeah. decade or two. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do love that uh, we, th and this is the point, uh, what you just said that people did have this mentality of cutting and starting fresh, and that's uh, and had nothing to do with any of that, which is which is clearly not the intention of of what the council wanted. Uh, it is uh, continuing. Can so can we? Um, I guess yeah, put to bed a few of these things, you know, sort of uh, misunderstandings um, and and, and uh, commentary out there that that is saying that um it was it was a break from the tradition and and there is definitely it's, it's still a hot debate among people um uh about this about whether or not it was still in continuity of of mm -hmm. of the history of the church but but as you say uh, it's still quite clear can we go through some of the um some elements we're not going to cover much today but just a little bit to whet people's appetite that as you say, so Gregorian chant is still very much encouraged. Um, am I right in saying it's even, um, is it pride and place? Is that the language? What's the word wording used? That's, that's the language of your mother, the church, is uh, all yeah. things being equal Gregorian chant, or maybe it's the pipe organ, but no, I think it's Gregorian chant is pride of place in uh, in church music. So, yeah, and, no. and even when you read, go up to, go up and open up that Roman missal that's on the, on the, uh, altar in your parish church, and it will give you instructions about what you can sing uh, at the entrance. And uh, one of the very first options will be the the introit from the Roman from the Graduale Romanum. Yeah, wow. So yeah, it it, it can still happen. So and even you know you probably know and many, many of the listeners many of our Sundays take their names from the the introits or entrance antiphons from the mass. So. Uh, Gaudete Sunday uh, in uh, in Advent and Laetare Sunday uh, uh, and uh, Quasimodo Sunday, which is uh, what is that? Uh, <laughs> that Quasimodo Sunday is uh, 
the second Sunday of Easter. So it'd be the octave day of Easter. And it was the day that the arch, the archdeacon of Notre Dame Cathedral found this hunched back baby abandoned on his steps. So that's why they called him Quasimodo. So the entrance antiphon is just as newborn babes or like newborn babes. And it's in reference to, to the newly baptized, to the neophytes who are they're babies now, and they, they receive their nourishment from milk and things like that from, from the church. But no, the, the, the church's musical patrimony is, has not been abandoned. Uh, maybe in your parish, in your neighborhood it has, but go back and read the Second Vatican Council. Go back and read even the documents that implemented the Second Vatican Council. So shortly, I don't know if this was late 60s, I suppose, uh, Pope Paul VI sent a collection of Gregorian chants to every bishop in the world, and it's called uh, Jubilate Deo. You can find this online, Jubilate Deo. Subtitle is something like, On the Minimum Repertoire of Gregorian Chants, okay? the, the chants that every Catholic around the world ought to know. You know, yeah, so the yeah. mass parts, you know, some of the Marian antiphons and other great antiphons. I mean, so it's the mind of the council. It's the mind of the Pope who closed the council, the mind of the Pope who was implementing the council that, that, that not only the Latin ordinary parts should be known by Catholics to recite, but also sung. So, yeah, I think, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Latin or Gregorian chant, Charbel, um, you know, a, you might know this line from Chesterton about how his friends were saying, listen, this, this Christianity thing, it's been tried and it's not working. Just give it up. And Chesterton says, it's not that it's been tried and found wanting, rather it's been tried and found difficult. And so left untried. And I think with the missile, we could apply that, you know, the missile from the council. It's not that it's been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. So why do we try to, you know, <laughs> sing one piece of Gregorian chant in the course of an entire year. That would be a start for many places. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now that's only, I've only touched on one thing there. That's the one, uh, 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 scripture. Can we talk about, uh, yeah, a little bit about how scripture has um, been, I guess, uh, not introduced as always there, but but how it's been, how it, increased or the use of scripture increased how how was what's the difference between that i guess uh, pre yeah. and post so the uh, uh prior to the council or in the books prior in use prior to the council the scriptural readings were on a one-year cycle so mm -hmm. you know the uh, uh, fourth sunday of lent you would always hear the same readings um and i think even um um I don't know the, the number of readings uh, prior to the gospel reading. So that, that may have changed too. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that, but certainly on a one-year cycle. So after the council, uh, you know, this was a major principle for um, not just the constitution on the sacred liturgy, but for the council as a whole. So one of their documents was Dei Verabum on the word of God. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but in the liturgy, so now is, is, most people probably know the Sunday readings are on a three-year cycle, A, B, and C. So A is a Matthew, B is Mark, Luke is a C, and, and John usually gets the privileged seasons like Christmas and Easter and things like that. Um, certainly two readings before the gospel on Sundays, uh, and then during weekdays, they're on a two-year cycle. And so I was reading something recently where somebody actually went through and gave the percentages of uh, 
what one would have heard from the Old Testament and the old cycle and what one hears now. And, you know, if I don't remember exactly what they were, but certainly there's a much greater increase in the amount of sacred scripture that's proclaimed uh, in the liturgy. So, and even, for mm -hmm. example, in uh, Blessings. So the Book of Blessings is, uh, if you're running liturgical uh, circles, Charbel, you know, the Book of Blessings is a book that is especially looked down upon by, uh, by many uh, liturgists and many pastors. Um, but the Book of Blessings, there's never to be a blessing unless a, even a short passage of scripture precedes it. So there's okay. never just a simple blessing without there also being scripture. So yeah, that was a key principle from the council to, to make us more familiar, give us more of an example of scripture. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Um, just, uh, yeah, and uh, I guess uh, the two parts, we understand liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist, was that always understood? Is that something that was always from the beginning or is that something that we've introduced recently? Oh. No, 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 no. In fact, uh, if you go back to the catechism uh, in its section on the Eucharist, they have this excerpt from uh, St. Justin Martyr writing right. in about the year 155. And it just it's a short excerpt in the catechism, a few paragraphs long. And he describes what these Christians do when they get together in their Sunday assemblies. And he talks about that very thing as they come together and they read from the from the letters of the uh, of the of the prophets and the apostles and things like that. And and then uh, the leader gets up and uh, uh, explains them to the people. And so, no, the, these two parts, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist have uh, have always been part and parcel of uh, of the mass. Um, but again, I you know, I, I don't want to caricature anything, but it was, you know, how, it, it just wasn't seen as very important. Uh, maybe that's even unfair, uh, but to many, it certainly wasn't seen as, the liturgy of the word wasn't seen as uh, particularly significant. So mm -hmm. yeah, certainly got a boost uh, with, uh, with the documents of the council. Yeah, okay, okay. I, I, um, I really um, want to encourage people, I mean, to really educate about about the beauty and the symbolism behind everything we do in the mass, uh, everything has a has a uh, a symbolic meaning, um, and and you go through great detail in many of the even on the liturgical um, uh, institute uh, the idea of from the church building to the entrance door to the to the uh, threshold of heaven to going in. I mean, all these things. Uh, uh, and 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 a lot of and what I love is when you read the Adoramus Bulletin, there are bite-sized articles where you can learn a bit about different elements of the mass, a bit of the history of. Um, it's quite beautifully, and, and it's nice to sort of um, learn more and more about the different parts of the mass uh, because it is our highest form of uh, prayer, right? Worship, worshiping God in the mass. Um, uh, would you just yourself personally has your the more you've studied over your your life here and your appreciation for the mass how has that sort of the more you've learned how has that impacted the way you've worshipped yeah well it's uh it certainly has uh I, I just i really do have the best job in the world i mean maybe you and i could argue about that i think we yeah, both uh, love right. what we do i love uh, per, running parisia as well <laughs> Yeah, I get paid uh, for 40 hours a week to study the liturgy and teach it. Uh, it's wonderful. So it's very privileged. Um, you know, my pastor has to raise money to fix the roof and uh, keep the school open. And, you know, I get to read theology and liturgy books. But it's <laughs> it's beautiful to, to learn more and more about that. But I think the most 
rewarding part really is teaching other people about the liturgy and how to pray the liturgy. Um, you know, I just, uh, you know, you mentioned liturgy can be a very contentious thing. And um, I'm not a very contentious, argumentative, polemical person at all. I try to just avoid all of that. So that I ended up in the liturgical apostolate is a bit of a uh, mystery to me. But to teach somebody else how to pray mm. um, is uh, one of the most beautiful things in the world. Or you experience this too, to teach somebody a, a beautiful truth of the faith and yes. how it can change their lives. I mean, they just, um, they're so grateful to you. And it's, it's not uncommon, you know, say we'll teach on the sign of the cross and all the layered meanings of it. And so a Catholic who's 80 years old will come up and say, and they're mad though. They say, I've been a Catholic for 80 years and I've never heard these things before. Why yeah. not? Why am I hearing this just for the first time? Just all of the great meaning behind these things that we do is, uh, um, it's, it's great for me. It's, uh, helping others to, to pray, uh, the same as, uh, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. I thank God for it. Uh, even amidst yeah, my beautiful. complaints. <laughs> beautiful. Uh, what, what, um, I guess, how do people get in touch with, uh, the different things here? So those around the world, they could visit, um, liturgical Institute if they wanted, there are online courses if they want to learn more about the liturgy, right? Is that sure. up now? Yeah. So there's a number of places where you can access this type of approach to the liturgy. So yeah. the Liturgical Institute is a graduate program in Mundelein, but they have a number of online courses, and I've taught a couple of them. So you could go watch uh, some of those. Uh, Adoramus Bulletin, uh, of course, would be one of those. Uh, the Liturgy mm -hmm. Guys podcast that uh, uh, Jesse and uh, Dennis and I uh, do each week. Uh, we're in our seventh season now, so that would yeah. be uh, another place. So, yeah, and again, in all of this, you know, we take the church's books as given, and we try to just open up the mystery of the liturgy in a very life-changing uh, way. So it's a, it's a beautiful apostolate to be a part of. Yeah, beautiful. I highly recommend, yeah, just subscribing to the liturgy, guys. Go back, you know, go to, let's, you know, episode one and start working through, because you've covered so much ground in those, and, and that's a course in itself, just, and you have a lot of fun doing it, and it's great mm -hmm. to see. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd like to, um, and uh, may, maybe just in, in sort of closing here, and, I, and I'm, I'm conscious I haven't done it justice in today's podcast. We've sort of touched on a few ideas, but I wish people can really, you know, like you said, there's meaning in everything. The sign of the cross is one. Mm -hmm. Could you give us one little nugget before we go of, of some element of the mass that you recently taught on um, that people may have missed? You know, next time they go to mass, they'll notice a meaning yeah. of something. what pops well, fact, out yeah here's something that i so one of the things i get to do is i teach uh, men in what's called kind of a discernment year before they go into the seminary so yep. once a week i have a class with these eight or ten guys young guys we were talking about typologies and you might remember in uh, there was a reading maybe two weeks ago it was about when the chosen people are going across the desert and they're going to engage Amalek in battle. And Moses goes up to the top of the hill and he has to hold his arms out in the, you know, like this, but he gets tired, right? So uh, Aaron and her have to hold up his arms. And I had never noticed this till one of the guys pointed it out was that when uh, Moses goes up there, he's not just holding his arms in the, in the shape of a cross, but he's holding a staff too. Hmm. So imagine here's Moses with his arms holding a cross beam of wood in the shape of a cross on the top of a hill. And down below, 
is a group of people on their way to the promised land who are trying to be stopped by somebody in, in, the, in the form of a devil to keep them from getting there. And so we were talking about this in class and that so the next time you make the sign of the cross, okay, go back and think about Moses with the wood in the form of a cross on top of the hill. And here you are, a pilgrim on your way to a promised land. The devil's trying to keep you from getting there. But if you journey beneath that sign of the cross, just like the people of the old covenant, you're going to get there successfully. So that's something I learned just this last week. Yeah, I've been beautiful. teaching about the sign of the cross for 20 years. And I didn't pretend that I knew everything about it, but I didn't know that about it. And that really, uh, I thought was 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 pretty awesome. This business of Moses with the with the wood of the cross there. So think about the next time you make the sign of the cross. You're journeying beneath that sign of the cross on the way to the promised land. I love wow. it. I love it. And this is uh, what we need to really get to straight into the beauty of of, of what we do, because I think that's going to enrich our soul, enrich our faith, uh, and not get caught up in what we sometimes these political battles. And, uh, and I have to just, I'm sharing personally from personal experience. Um, sometimes I've, I've, I've disturbed, I guess, my peace and my prayer life, worrying too much about, oh, should I be going to this mass or that mass or is it valid? Or when you, when you sort of get too caught up um, and you, you start acting as Pope, you, you sort of um, are really missing the point here. End of the day, we, we turn up as, as a child of God, faithful of the church faithful to the magisterium whether we like something or not we go in reverent um, and and connect ourselves with god and and really no one should be able to disturb that peace and that prayer that connection we have with the with with the triune god but we seem to once we let people sort of disturb that then we're we're sort of distant and that's what the devil wants and the devil's very clever um he's done he's done something uh, in recent years uh, more so than ever is just really i've noticed just more in the last five years or 10 years, uh, there's more division among Orthodox Catholics uh, about liturgy. And it's like, wow, wow, let's just get back to get back and pray. <laughs> um, yeah. How many hours, uh, I mean, how many, how much, how many hours do we waste on, on um, debating these things when, when end of the day, if we can't actually change those things, uh, just turn up, learn about the beauty of what, what we have access to get there and, 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 you know, praise God always and, well, and get into, well, get in connected with your faith. So um, I think one, one step is the Adoramus Bulletin is going to help with that. And that helps just help rediscover things that we may not have noticed before. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, highly recommend. So very excited. Can we, um, as we wrap up here, how, how do you get Adoramus Bulletin in America? How does that work there? And I'll announce the Australian way. Yeah, well, in uh, in America or uh, adoramus.org, so A-D-O-R-E-M-U-S dot O-R-G will take you to the homepage and there's information to to uh, subscribe there. And um, before you tell uh, folks in uh, in Australia or New Zealand, thank you, Charbel, and all of your team at Perusia for helping to promote and distribute to Adoramus down there. I've never been to I think, you know, my in-laws are from uh, from Adelaide uh, uh, and I have a sister-in-law in Hobart and one in Melbourne, but I've never been to Australia. I wouldn't know the first yeah. thing about <laughs> how to distribute Adoramus in uh, Australia. So this wouldn't be possible without you and and, uh, and your team. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Yeah, we got to get you out here to Australia one day and, and do an Australian tour. I'd love I'd love to do um, 
some conferences and maybe even some intensive um, courses on the liturgy would be wonderful. And I think as people discover that, it's going to really enrich their faith. But um, I've, I'm, I'm excited to announce, yeah, we've over uh, this year, over the course of this year, uh, about 1,500 copies, I think. Uh, yeah, well over, yeah, one and a half thousand copies have been distributed across um, different cities in Australia and, and New Zealand. And we hope uh, to expand that even further. And, and what we've been offering this year and for 12 months is it's completely free. Basically, just let us know that you want a copy. Let us know if you're connected to a parish and you want to get 10 or 20 copies. And we're happy to distribute that, send it to you for free. And the way this has been possible is uh, a handful of people have been paying it forward, so to speak. So some people are donating $50, $100. Some have donated up to 1000 where they've covered the print costs and the shipping costs and the, po the postage costs. Um, so this could get out there to the masses. And so if you're inspired watching this and, and you want to reach people with the Utter MS Bulletin, uh, help us keep it free. There's a handful of you that are in a position that might be able to pay it forward, so to speak, and uh, get in touch with us at perusiamedia.com uh, and you'll see uh, Utter Ramus Bulletin. You can do a search on our website, Utter Ramus, and there's a whole page describing how to get a copy. And thank you to all those supporters up until now. You've made it possible to reach you know, over a thousand people in this country and we want to reach more. Um, so please help us do that. Visit perusiamedia.com uh, to know more about this exciting initiative, Utter Amos Bulletin. Um, yeah, this is quite exciting, uh, Chris, and it's only, we're only warming up, I think. We're just getting started. I think so too. I hope so. I hope we yeah, can talk well, again on your podcast, Charbel. Yeah, I hope to have you on again soon and we're praying for you. Keep going with what you're doing. And um, and and one thing I didn't mention was every every edition now, does include an Australian contributor. So there's an article from an Australian professor or uh, a bishop or, or someone uh, in the space. And, and it's been quite exciting to see over the last uh, few editions and and, uh, and that's going to be continuing on. So watch out Aussies, uh, look out for, for spot the Aussie. If you can do that, <laughs> we'll start sharing some of these articles as well on our Narragate uh, blogs. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Um, God bless. Thank you, everyone. That's another Perusia podcast. Announcing the, you know, the officially launched of the Utter Amos Bulletin. Get your copy today. And, and thanks again for your support. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.